The scripture reading today is from Matthew 6, uh, verses 19 through 34. Um, In the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, it's on page 960. Do not stir up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But stir up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of God. Okay, um, keep this on, Jay, because... So, here we are, just to remember where, where, where we are. Today we're going to talk about greed which says basically it's never enough, and we'll explore that a little bit. But this is part of our Seven Deadly Sins series. We've already covered pride, which says it's all about me, envy, which says effectively I want what you have, and I don't want you to have it. And anger, which we looked at last week, which uh, hurts everyone. And we've had a chance to hear some kind of personal stories about how that particular... Um, sin has worked out in somebody's life and some of the chances they've had to make some progress in that as well. And Michael wanted to share about anger. So that's kind of a bridge between these two, anger last week and greed too, but this is his response to that. Uh, Michael Johnson's going to share just a little bit. (laughs) You got this. I'm not going to lie, this is a little rough for me to do. pastor at the beginning said, name and claim your sin. Let's be that type of church. And uh, so I, about Wednesday or Thursday, I reached out and got a hold of him and said, I really got to lay this down before the church. And uh, I'll just start with, uh, I grew up in a very angry, violent home when I was a child. And uh, when I came to the Lord, I laid a lot of stuff down in my life. Like, I mean, drugs, Cigarettes, smoking, cursing, a lot of stuff in my life I laid down. But my past wrongs, I sort of like put them on the back burner. I said, 
Lord, you didn't have all this stuff, but this right here, I, I need this. This has got me through all of my life. This is, those wrongs can't happen to me again. They won't happen to my family again. I'm going to make sure that uh, this stuff never happens again. And, uh, you know, I put it on the back burner, but, you know, when you stick stuff on the back burner, it sometimes overflows. And when it overflows, it gets into your life. And it's caused havoc in my life. Sometimes I reacted very angry when I shouldn't have. Or I would sit up at night and I would think about how people have wronged me and what I would do now. And uh, I would also think about where their lives have turned out. And I would find great joy in that. And I would be miserable sitting in my anger and not knowing how to get out of it. And this week the Lord sort of like pulled me out of that. He said, it's time to dump this pot out. It's, it's not good. It's, it's not good. It's infecting your whole life. It's ruining our whole dinner. Uh, so so that's, what, that's, that's pretty much it for this week. Thank you. And I'm sure, Michael, if uh, people are curious more about that, you'd probably be even willing to share specifically how God's delivered you from, from that background. I mean, Michael's a pretty private guy, and he's opened up to me a couple of times about the environment where he grew up, which, which was not, uh, it wasn't safe. And um, he, was, he was kind of bred to fight. Um, hundreds and hundreds of fights, and uh, liked, liked being hit, felt good. That, that, so there was a very warped distortion of something good, and that's what these sins are all about. They take kind of something that's good and sort of warp it and make it look like it's, it's beneficial to us, but it's not. It's deadly. It's harmful. And so we'll take a look this, uh, this morning agreed with that in, in mind as well. And it's probably best just to start off by giving a sense of what, what we mean by, by greed. Uh, and uh, Aquinas says on greed that it's an excessive desire or love for money or for the possessions that money can buy. So that's kind of the, the narrow focus on greed. It can be broader than that too, but specifically it's dealing with money and the stuff you get from money and having excessive desire for it. In the passage that we read, Jesus says that this money can be your God, that this can be what you serve, what you worship, and you might be willing to do anything to get more of it. And you often justify your actions uh, by it, saying you can cover up things that, that you maybe know are wrong and justify it because it's getting you more money or more things as well. Just last week, uh, I was listening on the news, and some of you may recognize uh, the, the name John Kapoor, who, especially if you're in the pharmaceutical industry, I'm guessing perhaps you, you know that as well. Um, this was an interesting case that uh, he was sentenced to five and a half years of prison, and it was kind of a landmark case in some senses because he was the top executive of INSYS Therapeutics, I-N-S-Y-S. So an o opioid maker, painkiller maker, and the, the specific medicine was to be for uh, cancer patients. But what this company did is they expanded its application because they were profiting from it. So they began to convince doctors and do all kinds of um, unsavory things to incentivize doctors to prescribe that medication to patients who didn't need it. 
which in turn, for many people, made them addicts, which made them need more of that painkiller. In addition to the fact that they created sort of a, a, a sham call center and uh, made false claims against this so that if the, this drug was about $20,000 a month and they made insurance companies pay for it even when the patients didn't need it. They became billionaires. Why? What was their motivation for doing that? Do you think it was in the interest of the patients? It was all about the money that they could get. That may seem removed billionaire executives. How about this? On Thursday of this week, I got a phone call from Duke Energy saying my electricity was about to be shut off because we hadn't paid our bill. Now, it's very interesting. Recently, our bill has been very different than normal. So I started to panic. This person was very convincing, had a claim number and everything, and basically told me, you owe so much money. It was 463 or whatever. You got to get it in the next 30 minutes. They're going to shut off their electricity. I said, well, where do I go? You can go to one of our centers, Walgreens or whatever. I'm like, interesting. Okay. I was, I was kind of panicking. It all seems so obvious to me now. But in the moment, I'm thinking, I got to get this taken care of. And I was in space with some other people. They heard my uh, voice getting frustrated. We've been loyal customers. We're on, you know, the automatic payment plan. How could this be possible? It's your fault, not ours, you know. And they said, no, no, well, I'm sorry, but we'll take this up. Don't worry, you'll be reimbursed, yada, yada, yada. And this hung up the phone. And this guy said, that's a scam, dude. I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, so I checked online and looked. Our balance was different. I finally called Duke Energy. And if you look at their website, actually, it says, what does the scam look like? They'll call you and say, your electricity is going to be shut off unless you pay. It's exactly what they were doing to me. And I'll tell you what, if it weren't for people around me, I think I might have done it because I am a fix-it kind of guy. I'm going to take care of my family. And it kind of made me mad. Like, not only that I'd be so gullible, but more that, why are these people doing this? They're taking money from people who may not even have as much as I do, and it's just gone. That's wrong. It's greed. With greed, profits come before people. So the question is not, how might this affect others if I do this action, but will it get me more money or maybe a discounted service. Can I shade the truth so I don't have to pay quite as much? And the question is not, am I acting with integrity, but will it benefit me personally? I bet if we sat and thought, we could think of a hundred examples of how we do that. Not to save, you know, to make billions of dollars, but just to save a few pennies or dollars. Greed creates a callousness for those who are in need. It means we only have regard for self and not for the others around us. If you look at 1 Kings 21, it's kind of a classic picture of that. This King Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard, and the guy said no, and he's sulking, and his wife said, what's wrong with you? He won't give me his vineyard, and she conspires. She gets a, hatches a plan to get that guy eliminated so he can get his vineyard. He gets Naboth killed. And he's got what he wants. With greed, money comes before God. For the greedy, money is their ultimate end. It's their God whom they serve. And all of life is prioritized around it. Maybe it's not so obvious, of course. In our lives as well, 
Um, that can be the case. One time in Matthew 19, a rich man comes to Jesus and he says, you know, I'm interested in, in, uh, in knowing what I need to do to get eternal life. And Jesus says, hey, look, here's all these commands. Do, do these things. Obey the commands. And the man who comes says, I've done all that. And Jesus says, okay, then we'll go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And the guy goes away de dejected and sad because he was wealthy. He had a lot of money. And he didn't want to do that. So ironically, Jesus is saying, you know, you think you've kept all the commands? You've actually broken the first one. You will have no other gods before me. Seems that Jesus is saying, you're not quite as self-aware as you think you are. Sort of like that chapter last week. You have an anger problem? Yes. Do you have a greed problem? Yes. If you think you don't, you just haven't thought enough about it. You're not aware enough of how our heart motivations can become distorted and disordered so that we're serving what we get instead of the God who gives it to us. That's what greed's all about. This guy goes broken. He's you know, broken the first uh, commandment here. You'll have no other gods before me. In Exodus 20, chapter 3, he didn't think he struggled with greed. But it can become a false god. And what I mean by that is it's a place we run for a sense of security. Like I'm going to be okay if I have enough money. A sense of worth. How valuable am I? And a sense of identity. You know, this is, we kind of root ourselves in that. I remember one of these old commercials that used to walk around with people and they had their net worth over their heads. Back when commercials existed and that kind of thing. If you, if, if you remember that commercial, there's a guy walking around and he's like worth 533000 and another guy a million. And I'm like, man, that's, I want that. You know, I wonder what my number is above there too. You know, so, so is my motivation how, how much my net worth is? What if, what if it's uh, how much I love God? What if we walk around and see that? on your head <laughs> how much you've given away what would that look like if we have money we think we'll be okay if we have money we think we won't be anxious if we have money we think we can control others and in some cases we can if we have money we can get what we want if we have money we have nothing to fear but since money's a false god that is never the case Money was not designed to give us a sense of identity, purpose, and assurance in the ultimate sense. So we should not be surprised to find that the wealthy are still very insecure people. That they have more to lose. Remember back in 2008 when the stock market tanked and everything went down? And uh, people I was with, some people who had a lot of money were talking about how much they lost. You know, they lost half of what they... They hurt a lot more than I did. I had very little to lose. I'm like, oh, didn't really hurt me that much. I'm not suggesting that you, you know, get a net worth of like $5, and that's a good thing, because if you lose half of it, you're 250 But when you have a lot, you have a lot to lose. And you're driven to protect it. And you suspect when other people are making friends with you, because you're wondering if they want more of it. It's just a reality. Wealth is not the answer to contentment. If you think the wealthy don't have anxiety, if you think that they think it's going to be enough, it never is. It's never enough. Never. 
Not if money is your God. If you're wealthy, you're tempted to believe it is. And guess what? If you have food in your pantry, you're wealthy. On a relative scale, you're filthy, stinking rich. If you can go home today and you're having a Super Bowl party with guacamole and chips, you're wealthy. But it's still not going to be enough, is it? In 1999, Juliet Shore, a Harvard economist, wrote The Overspent American, Why We Want What We Don't Need. And part of what she drew out was an observation that only one-third of American households that made over $100,000 per year, this is 1999, you make more than $100,000, you can be a household of one person or three, four, five, only one-third agreed with this statement. I can afford to buy everything I really need. That's the statement. I can afford to buy everything I really need. Agree or disagree. Only one-third of people who made over $100,000 agreed with that statement in the United States of America. It's never enough. You think, I'll get that promotion, then it'll be enough. No, it won't. It won't. It never will be enough. Because the issue isn't how much you have. This is a hard issue. Are you content with what you've been given? And greed tells us, no, never. It will never be enough to address the fear it hopes to cover, the power it hopes to gain, and the security it hopes to attain. Money is a terrible God. And Jesus knows this. And he is addressing it in, in Matthew 6. He offers a better way. If you think, okay, fine, maybe it is bad. What do I do? Jesus offers a better way. He says, don't store up treasures here. Instead, store for yourself treasures in heaven. Nothing's going to touch it. It's not going to disappear. It's going to have eternal returns. I mean, compounding interest is nothing compared to this investment in the things of God and in the eternal way that he's working. And Jesus knows where your treasure is, your heart will be. I remember the first time we made an investment in a mutual fund. We were very young, didn't, never have enough money to do something like that. We, we, we put some money in early on and then just never did anything with it after that. But I remember that when we put that money in there, I looked at it about every day. You know, on, on whatever reports there were, like, did it grow? Did it do something? It was so exciting to actually have, you know, something to look at and see is it growing and that kind of thing. And it's just, my heart was attached to it because I invested in it. And Jesus knows that. Where you put your money, what you invest, your, and it's bro greed's broader than that, your, your, the, the stuff, your time, your resources, what you invest in, that's what you're paying attention to. And your heart attaches to those things. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. Now, where you spend and invest your money reflects your attachments. But if you think about it, it also shapes them too. I mean, I, what I mean by that is where you put your money shapes what you are attached to. So in some senses, if you feel detached from this kind of notion that 
giving, which we'll get to, is something that's good to do. When you start giving, you'll find your heart shaped in a different kind of way. Sometimes you need to take that first step. And then you'll find that your heart starts shaping around where you've invested. That's where our hearts will be. So, how do we store up treasures in heaven? And in, in most of these cases, we've talked a lot about the sin and hope we all feel like we've got real issues at the end of the day. And then, of course, we're not left alone. The gospel comes into this too. And not as much time on the virtue. So I want to talk more about the virtue this, this now too. The corresponding virtue in this case is generosity. And it's very clear. All the old writers agree on this too. If you're struggling with greed, the, what you nurture instead is generosity. And generosity is uh, rooted in liberality in the Latin, which has its roots in freedom, right? I mean, it means freedom. If, you're, if you have liberality or generosity, that's freeing, strangely enough. The generous man is free from attachment to money and can what it, what it can buy. So you can be a very wealthy person and not attached to money. You can be a very poor person and very attached to money as well. It's not an amount issue. Are you free? Is it controlling you or are you controlling it? The generous man's free from that attachment. So money is not mine for the free person, not tight-fisted, but open-handed. A steward, not an owner. That's very biblical language too. You just are entrusted for a short time with these resources. And if you think that it's all about you and what you can do, Deuteronomy 8 makes it clear. The only reason you got the brains you do or are born in the place and time that you do that has some sort of return on it in terms of money is because God gave it to you. So, you know, bring your little self-inflation down a bit here too. Put you in another time, another generation, you might not make anything. You're a steward. This is, uh, this is what Paul tells Timothy to people in his day. Command those who are rich. There's people who have food in their pantry. In this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, 2008. And who knows, maybe it could be 2020. <laughs> I don't know. But put their hope in God who richly provides everything for our enjoyment, which I think is great. I mean, these things are to be enjoyed, for sure. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. You want to be wealthy? Do good deeds. And to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So if you think, what does it mean for me to be, you know, laying up treasures in heaven? Paul says, do good deeds. And if you got stuff, share it freely. Be generous. And in that way, you'll be laying up treasures in heaven. So there's a very practical way to combat greed. Be generous. Be open-handed with your stuff. Be willing to share. And if you find that hard, ask why. And that's what we're doing with all this stuff, right? If you're like, ugh, this is hard. I don't want to give this. I don't want to share. Why? Why? Why, 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 why? <laughs> Get to the bottom of it. Why is it hard to give, for example, a tithe? 
this concept in the Bible that says 10% of the first fruits in that agrarian culture kind of carried over here to, to, to the stuff that you have, your money goes to the work that God's doing in the context of the local church. 10%. Why is that hard to do? I mean, there could be some real reasons. You think the church isn't worth it. Okay, fine, whatever. But why? Why? Ask why. What if you do? What if you're committed, you're on board, and you find you're not doing it? Why? And, you know, I remember early on in ministry, the first church that we were involved in, the only other one, Mother Church supplanted us too, back when it was smaller, and uh, the treasurer was in a small group that he led, I was in, in with him, and he said, Christians don't give more than 2% of their income to their local church. And I said, no, no, it's not true. It's not true. It's certainly not true for this church, I said. He's like, eh, yeah, it is. I said, no, there's no possible way that can be true. As a young believer, it, newly involved in a church for the first time, it didn't make any sense to me. And part of the reason is I don't know why or how, I became a believer at 16. Somewhere along the way, somebody told me part of what it means to walk with God is to give a tithe. It was built into me. Even if I was making almost nothing, I just gave 10%. It's just what I did. It just seemed like the thing that you did. So when I got involved in the church and they said people only give 2%, I, my mind was blown. I said there is no possible way that's true. Unfortunately, over the years, I have seen that is the case. I don't know what everybody gives. I don't know amounts, but I keep asking, you know, uh, every now and then, what do you think people are given? A rough and like two, 2.5% probably if we had to guess. So apparently, this is a thing. <laughs> and I, 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 why? It's in my spiritual DNA. I don't know why. There are times that I think, honestly, what could I have done with that money? I don't know if you are a faithful giver, and maybe I'm the worst of all to think that. But there are moments when I thought, hmm, I know how much I've given this year. What could I have done with that instead of giving? I'm probably the only person who asks that question. It's usually in a crisis. And when that happens, I'm honest with God about it. I ask him to realign my heart, build more trust in him, to rediscover the joy of generosity in the face of trial. And especially because generosity and trust have a directly corresponding relationship in the Bible. When you give, you have to trust that God's going to provide. And if you don't give, you may not have an opportunity to grow in your trust. They just go hand in hand. They go with each other. I mean, my, my current giving says I'm trusting God to provide for me in the future. That's what Jesus is saying. Be generous and trust that I will provide. That joy of generosity, especially when that generosity means you have to trust God, is exactly where the Macedonians were. And Paul is writing to this, this church that is in a very uh, trying circumstance. They're poor. He comes to visit them. And they want to give because they hear other people are struggling. But they're not in a good position to give. Financially, they don't have much money. And yet, when he comes to them, he says, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. He's talking about the Macedonian church when he's writing to the Corinthians. 
For I testified that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. So picture this. You come up after the church and say, Pastor Mark, we've got to give more money to the needs that we just heard about. Please! Can we give more? Please, 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 please. We want to give you more money so that, you can, so that the people can be investing in the kingdom we're investing in. And we've heard of this need. I don't know if I've ever actually had that experience before. Usually pastors have to say, come on, people. You know, it's, come on, give. It's good for you. And this, these people are just like, we are so connected with the thing that God is doing. We were pleading for the privilege of giving, even though they didn't have enough for themselves. See, greed says it's never enough. These people understand generosity and say, we want to give more, more than we even can, because the enough for them is something entirely different. It's not the material stuff. It's the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. It's others-oriented. A generous person, a person who's practicing this kind of liberality, is going to care about possessions, of course, but simply will not be over-attached to them, quick to release them. Let me give you an example of how this worked on the receiving end in my life. I went down when Katrina struck. I was part of a disaster relief team. And uh, one of the people that we were helping, it was close to, to, to the coastline there too, a pretty humble house, had been completely, you know, destroyed, and it was gutted, and we were putting up siding on, uh, uh, on the outside and pulling out trash, and they were living in a little FEMA trailer out in the backyard, this uh, Mr. and Mrs. Lorback. This uh, man was probably, I don't know, 70, 75 years old or something like that too. They, they literally had everything taken from them. There was nothing left. This is, this is all he had. They were living in a trailer. And we were helping them out. While we were down there, back, meanwhile, back at the ranch, back at our, our home, our previous home in, in Mason, we had um, a, a pipe uh, burst, uh, the sewage pipe, so everything was backing up into our basement. So there was sewage in our basement. And Jill had four children. Their kids were probably eight, six, four, and two at that point with raw sewage in the basement. Um, and I couldn't do anything about it. We were headed to a Home Depot. I got that phone call. I was alarmed. I was concerned. And this, this guy, Mr. Lorback, um, heard about it. And we were talking or something like that. And uh, at the end of the day, he gave me an envelope. And, and he said, I want you to have this. I opened it up and it was a lot of money that he said, I don't want any uh, wife to feel like she's in that situation. Here's some cash for you to get that taken care of. This guy had nothing. Everything had been taken from him. And he's giving me money because of a backed up pipe? Thousand miles away? He doesn't know who I am at all. And of course... As you might suspect, he was a strong believer. And he said, God has given me so much over the years. I just want to share some of it with you. Now that to me was a little mind-blowing. <laughs> because in that circumstance, he's got nothing. And he's giving me more, even more than he can't afford anything. It's incredibly humbling. But it also is incredibly like something Jesus would say you should do, isn't it? His 
heart was in serving others. So he took his resources to do it, even when there was no justifiable reason to do it. And I was shaped as a result of it as well. That shapes my attitude toward these things also. How much have I been given? How freely do I share? Why am I unwilling to share? It's God doing work, rooting out greed in me and finding the the freedom, the life-giving, invigorating, refreshing way of generosity. Eric said something similar from a later proverb. Proverbs 11.25, a generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. It's such a joy to give and meet a need when somebody has it. It's refreshing. That's a very different view than John Kapoor would give. Probably about money. It's refreshing to give. Some of you know that. This feels like a Christmas message kind of, doesn't it? It's so wonderful to give and to see others experience life as a result. And this verse too suggests that generosity is actually linked to prosperity. Not the health and wealth gospel. If you just give all your money to Redeemer Church, God's going to bless you, I guarantee it. Actually, if you read the Corinthians passage in the Macedonian church, you'll put that notion to rest pretty fast, right? They were poor, suffered, and they didn't give so that the suffering would be taken away. And it wasn't. They were generous because their hearts wanted to give and to share in others. But there is still in the Bible a connection between giving and receiving. And in fact, the only place, as you probably know, where God invites us to test him they test me on this, see if it's not true, is in the area of giving. And it's specifically tithing. You probably know this passage. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. Go ahead, test me in this area of, of just giving generously. There are some churches that will actually have campaigns where they do this and they say, give 10%. You know, and, and if, if after so many months you find that God hasn't restored that in some way, we'll give you all the money back. Okay, we're not gonna do that. <laughs> I, 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 not because I don't trust that God can do it, but for other reasons. I just think you don't need to, here it is. Why not? Ask why. Why aren't, bring it all. And see if God doesn't provide. And I don't know how you add all that stuff up, how you measure. But I can tell you in my own walk uh, with God that he has always provided for us. When you're a faithful giver, you're generous, he always provides. It's one of the great ironies of God's upside down kingdom. We will not know what it means to see God's provision in this kind of way until we're willing to trust him in the moment with it. I mean, if you want to build more trust in God, give more. <laughs> give. If you, if, if you think in theory, I'd like to trust God more. Well, here's a practical application. Give more. Be generous. It's going gonna, it's gonna to build your trust. It has to. Because money can get the things that we want. And if we don't have it, we fear that we're not going to have that. 
And you know, our, our, our warped perception of what we need is clearly given in that statistic as well that we saw earlier. So you give, trust that God's going to provide. We might also be unaware of when those blessings actually come. If you're faithful in giving, it, it, it's an opportunity to start looking for the way that God provides. This is why I think faith promise is a great thing that we do. You know, every, every year, I encourage you to give in this kind of way, obviously, but even above and beyond that, to see if I'm giving even more than I feel like I've put into my budget, is God going to provide? And when he does, when he does, then I see that directly as his provision so that I can bless somebody else instead of more money to do something else that I wanted to do. I mean, the, first, the very first time that I was a big proponent of faith, faith promise and introduced it to the previous church and, you know, it's so exciting to see, just be looking for how is God going to provide? Because I don't know where it's going to come from. And some of you have heard this story. But, you know, Joe and I prayed about an amount and we said, okay, we're going we're gonna to look for God to provide this amount in the next year that we give to Faith Promise. At, there's always house repair. House ownership's not all it's cracked up to be. Some of you know that as well. There's a lot of great things about it, but it invites some unique challenges. In, in our particular case, um, our house, which was cinder block, had a crack that was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I could stick my hand through it like this as well. Uh, water was coming in uh, occasionally, and this was a real problem. You know, foundations are kind of important things for houses. And so we had somebody come over and look, and they said, yeah, this is a problem. They verified that it is, in fact, a problem. And they said, here's a couple of fixes. You know, one, the real expensive one, tens of thousands of dollars is hydraulics, and you dig out everything, and you crank it back up. And, but we have a cheaper version where you just put, you know, steel beams into the time into the footers and everything like that, and it'll keep it from expanding. And uh, we said, what does that cost? Well, here's how much it costs. Like, oh, that's the cheaper version, did you say? You know, <laughs> and it, it wasn't overwhelming. I mean, it was overwhelming to us at the time, but um, we thought, okay, well, we've got to do that. We just weren't in a position to be able to afford it at the time. Um, and then, believe it or not, this is a true story. I, I, walked, I walked in the next day to my office, and on my desk was an envelope with my name on it. I opened it up, and in cash... It was the exact amount that we had prayed for in faith promise that we were going to give in the next year that we didn't know where it was going to come from. And do you know what my first thought was when I saw that cash? Do you think it was praise God? He's provided for faith promise. No. Oh man, now we can afford to have our, our wall fixed. So even I, in my awesomeness, struggle with all this I'm like and then I and then I remembered oh yeah oh oh yeah yes yeah, like wait I want to be happy but I'm okay and we gave it the faith promise and I don't know how but that wall got fixed I could have taken it from myself and we could have run run to you know call them back and we said this is God's provision and it was still testing my faith and my trust I know it's not easy but isn't that awesome that to the dollar what we prayed for was right there. Our act of giving is a habit that etches that groove in our hearts 
creating more dependence on God. And being generous in the now means that we can trust God for the future. So just a few brief thoughts on how we can grow in the virtue of generosity. Uh, the first is start with understanding that God owns it all. That's a very basic principle. If you really believe God owns it all, and you're just managing what's his, it's going to be a little bit easier to start giving generously. And frankly, it could be that if you're not giving generously, generously you really don't believe God owns it all. You think you do. There's a good diagnostic for you. Also, remember God's grace to us in Christ. Because when I talk about giving, it's not just an inspirational speech to give a lot to a church so that we have a fat budget. This is, this is, this is something that is gospel-driven. 2 Corinthians 8, that same passage where the people wanted to give, why did they want to give? Paul says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is what God has done in Christ. He had the wealth of everything and made himself nothing, became flesh. Why? For our sakes. So we could know the grace of his goodness to us. And because of his poverty, now we're wealthy and rich. And out of that reality, we can overflow in the grace of giving as well. It's just a reflexive response to what Christ has already done for us. So you understand his grace better when you're giving in this kind of way as well. Hey, why not tithe? <laughs> you know, I mean, this is, this is a great way to practice this. And there's different ideas about is that 10% off of the top or after tax or you can do some reading on it too. But I don't think for most of you, if you're not giving in that way, that's really the issue, is it? And it could be that if you've, you're giving 1%, maybe you say 2 and the next year 3, perhaps. I'm just sort of a band-aid ripper on wounds. Just go for 10% and see what God does. You know, I mean, like, don't just yeet, 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 yeet. Make it the first thing that you do. There's all kinds of ways to do that. And also faith promise. We're going to start praying about and thinking about above and beyond what we're normally giving, ways that we see God providing. And we'll share some stories and, of, of missionaries who've benefited from your faithful contributions in the past to show you it's really making a difference. We'll take up those pledges in March. So just a little heads up on that. That can come from unexpected blessings, like I said. Maybe an intentional reduction of expenses or an additional revenue stream. And I think really what we're, what we're looking for is broader participation. I mean, it's not just a target amount. It's everybody participating in this. Even if it's a penny. Uh, God doesn't despise that. But you have to... You have to step forward in this and it's going to be exciting to see the way that God provides here's just something very practical why not look for opportunities to give away or share your material goods you want to grow in generosity just look for opportunities to do that when I was in college my parents lived overseas had no no way to get around no transportation I started dating this gal named Jill 
eventually. And, you know, she, I, I wanted to go maybe visit over a weekend or something. And uh, my friend Pete had a truck. And he told me, take my truck. You know, I mean, he's 20 years old. Take my truck and, and drive, drive there and come back. And I think he probably even gave me gas money. It's just how he was. He's, he had this notion at 20 years old, this is all God's. I mean, I'm, I'm a steward of this. Please be careful with my truck. <laughs> uh, but it's really not my truck. It's, it's, it's me to share with others. Now, we all know nobody wants to have a truck because everybody borrows people's trucks. If you want. So be, be, be sure you're a giver if you get a truck. Um, it, that was really instructive to me. See, I think all those things are shaping for me the way that I view money the way that I view possessions. And do you think I got it figured out? No. I constantly have to revisit this because the more stuff I get as you get older and maybe higher income brackets and whatever, you're like, you have to constantly combat that greed. And remember, this is not mine. One of the ways you do that, I think, is by being generous. This house, it's not my house. Come on in. Now oh, we got some boundaries and stuff and, you know, we get, but... To the extent that happens, this is God, does God want me to do this? Is, is a question we wrestle with. And uh, we want to be generous with that. And the other thing you might think about doing is give away what you don't use. There's a lot of excess in our closets, in our garages, in our cars if you live out of your car. I don't know. I mean, you've probably got stuff that you can give away I mean, there are some people who say, if you haven't worn something in the past year and it's not a suit for a funeral, you might want to keep that for some point in the future. What are you keeping on? Why? Give it, bless somebody else. Um, ask around. Give it to goodwill, whatever the case may be. Give away what you do not use. And that's all just practicing generosity, building that virtue inside of us. Now, a final thought. We need to realize this really is a matter of life and death. This isn't just about being a you know, pretty decent person and why you're generous. This is a deadly sin. Jesus tells uh, a parable, and I'm going to read, read it, um, and this will be the, mostly the, a brief comment afterwards, but just to keep in mind how, how serious this topic is to Jesus. This is in Luke chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. That someone's in the crowd, he's teaching, and... Uh, Jesus says to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be. With anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. That's, those are Jesus' words. Don't store up treasures for yourself. Store up treasures in heaven. 
I was reading somebody writing on this who talked about the story of a man who shows up to heaven with a bag, dragging a bag behind him. And of course he meets Peter. Peter's always at the pearly gates in these stories. And Peter says, hey, welcome to heaven. What you got there? So I got this, I got this bag and I need to take it with me. He said, ah, you don't need to bring anything in here. Just, just come on in yourself. No, 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 don't understand. I've spent my entire life compiling this and I've got to bring it in. So Peter says, well, okay, what, what's in there? And the man opens up his bag and he just pours out all kinds of gold. And Peter says, pavement? <laughs> the things that you think are worth so much don't matter at all in heaven. It's paved with gold, the streets are. It's pavement in heaven. All that stuff that you're getting. It's just stuff that we walk on. Because it doesn't have ultimately the value you think it does. Where your, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So greed, man, I'm telling you. Think about it this week. When you're try, trying to avoid a fee for something that is a just fee so that you can save money. You're trying to shade the truth, whatever. It's, it's, actually, it's actually greed that's, that's at play there too. We're pretty good at justifying it, especially in Western American culture where it's all about what I can save and the bottom line, what benefits me. Friends, that is not to be your perspective. If you're a, a sojourner on this earth, Money is not your God. God created all things. He's the one who owns it all and entrusts it with us. So let's be generous with it. Father, I pray that we would be less consumed with pavement and more concerned with the treasure that heaven has in store for us. And Jesus knows our hearts quickly attach to things, to money, and we're prone to greed. It can be deadly. So make us generous people. And the, the ground of that is not guilt. It's, it's, not, it's not a campaign to show the benefit and cost and benefit analysis. It's knowing the grace of Jesus. Though he was rich, he became poor. And through his poverty, we have become the richest of all, no matter how much is in our pantry. If that's the case, then, Lord, make us generous people because we know the, the riches that we have in Christ. And give us the right perspective on it. Give me the right perspective on it. My, my heart can be deceived easily in this sometimes. And uh, I want to I name it and claim it and recognize that I struggle with greed and maybe others do too. Help us to be generous and experience the refresh how refreshing it is to practice that generosity and I pray that if we're parents we do that so our kids can see it if we're kids we do it so our parents can see it and that people would know us as generous individuals and that your church spread throughout the world would be known for its generosity yeah. Yeah. and pray this in Jesus name amen, amen.